Well, ever since the reign of Queen Elizabeth I back in the 16th century, each and every British parliament at Westminster has opened its sittings in prayer. And uh, this practice of parliamentary uh, prayer has become a custom all throughout the British Commonwealth, including our own nation of Canada. I'm not sure how many of you know this, but in our federal parliament, the Speaker of the House is responsible for leading the members in prayer at each sitting of the House. From the time of uh, Canada's founding, Confederation, until 1994, the prayer was explicitly and non-apologetically Christian in its content. Now, I was uh, curious about this this week. I, I actually tried to find a copy of the original version of our parliamentary prayer, but I cannot find it anywhere. Uh, I can't find it anywhere online. But in any case, at the request of several elected representatives, the prayer was modified in 1994 in order to take out uh, some of the Christian content to make it generic and acceptable to members of other religions. And in more recent years, as Canada has been apostatizing from its Christian heritage, the parliamentary prayer has come under increased attack from certain members of the House. And uh, just a, a couple years ago, there, there was a couple members calling for its complete abolition. But uh, as of yet, the prayer is still in place. These are the words spoken by the Speaker of the House to this day. He says, Almighty God, we give thanks for the great blessings which have been bestowed upon Canada and its citizens, including the gifts of freedom, opportunity, and peace that we enjoy. We pray for our sovereign, King Charles, and the Governor General. Guide us in our deliberation as members of Parliament. Strengthen us in our awareness of our duties and responsibilities as members. Grant us wisdom, knowledge, and understanding to preserve the blessings of the country for the benefit of all and to make good laws and wise decisions. Amen. Whether uh, they take that prayer seriously and the laws that are being passed in, in Canada these days is a different question. Well, as we uh, open the scripture today and we continue along in our study of First Kings, we are actually going to consider one of the greatest prayers that was ever spoken by a magistrate. One of the greatest prayers spoken by a civil magistrate, this was the prayer offered by King Solomon at the time of the temple's dedication. So let's open uh, God's word together. You can turn to 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8. Remind you as I read that this is God's inspired and inerrant word. It says, Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' households, the sons of Israel, to King Solomon in Jerusalem, to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh from the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled themselves to King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethnaim, which is the seventh month. Then all the elders of Israel came, and the priests carried the Ark. They brought up the ark of Yahweh in the tent of meeting and the holy utensils which were in the tent. And the priests and the Levites brought them up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who congregated to him, being with him before the ark, were sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priests brought the ark of the covenant of Yahweh to its place into the inner sanctuary of the house, to the holy of holies under the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread their wings over the place of the ark, and the cherubim made its covering over the ark and its poles from above. But the poles were so long that the end of the poles could be seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen outside. 
and they are there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone which Moses laid there at Horeb, where Yahweh cut a covenant with the sons of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. Now it happened that when the priests came out of the holy place, the cloud filled the house of Yahweh, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of Yahweh filled the house of Yahweh. Then Solomon said, Yahweh has said that he would dwell in the cloud of dense gloom. I have surely built you a lofty house, a place for your dwelling forever. Then the king turned his face around and blessed all the assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel was standing. And he said, Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, who spoke with his mouth to my father David and has fulfilled it by his hand, saying, Since the day that I brought my people Israel from Egypt, I did not choose a city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house, that my name might be there, but I have chosen David to be over my people Israel. It was in the heart of my father David to build a house for the name of Yahweh, the God of Israel. But Yahweh said to my father David, because it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son who will come forth from your loins, he shall build the house for my name. And Yahweh has established his word which he spoke, and I have been established in place of my father David, and sit on the throne of Israel as Yahweh promised, and built the house for the name of Yahweh, the God of Israel. And there I have set a place for the ark, in which is the covenant of Yahweh, which he cut with our fathers when he brought them from the land of Egypt. Then Solomon stood before the altar of Yahweh before the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands towards heaven and he said, O Yahweh, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and loving kindness to your slaves who walk before you with all their heart, who have kept with your servant, my father David, that which you have promised him. Indeed, you have promised with your mouth and have fulfilled it by your hand as it is this day. So now, O Yahweh, God of Israel, keep with your servant David, my father, that which you have promised him, saying, You shall not have a man cut off from before me who is to sit on the throne of Israel, if only your sons keep their way to walk as you have walked before me. So now, O God of Israel, let your word truly endure, which you have spoken to your servant, my father David. But will God truly dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this house which I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your slave and to his supplication. O Yahweh, my God, to listen to the cry and to the prayer which your slaves pray before you today. That your eyes may be open towards this house night and day, toward the place of which you have said, My name shall be there. To listen to the prayer which your slave shall pray towards this place. And listen to the supplication of your slave and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place. Listen in heaven, your dwelling place. Listen and forgive. If a man sins against his neighbor and is to make an oath and he comes and takes an oath before your altar in this house, then listen in heaven and act and judge your slaves, condemning the wicked by bringing his way on his own head and justifying the righteous by bringing him reward according to his righteousness. When your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they sinned against you, if they, if they turn to you again and confess your name and pray and make supplication to you in this house, listen in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land which you gave to their forefathers. And the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you and they 
Pray towards this place and confess your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them. Listen in heaven. Forgive the sin of your slaves and your people Israel. Indeed, teach them the good way in which they should walk and give rain on your land which you have given to your people for an inheritance. If there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence, if there is scorching wind or mildew, locust or grasshopper, if their enemy besieges them in the land of their cities, whatever ever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer of supplication is made by any man, by all your people Israel, each of whom knows the affliction of his own heart and spreads his hands towards this house, listen in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and give each according to all his ways whose heart you know. For you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men that they may fear you all the days they live upon the face of the land that you've given to our fathers. Also concerning the foreigner who is not of your people Israel, if he comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they will hear of your great name and your strong hand and your outstretched arm. So if he comes and prays towards this house, listen in heaven your dwelling place. Do according to all which the foreigner calls you to do, though, so in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name to fear you as do your people Israel, and to know that your name is called upon this house which I have built. When your people go out to battle against their enemy, by whatever way you shall send them, they pray to Yahweh towards the city which you have chosen and the house which I have built for your name. Listen in heaven to their prayer and their supplication and do justice. And when they sin against you, for there is no man who does not sin, And you're angry with them and give them over to an enemy so that they take him away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near. And if they cause these things to return to their heart in the land where they've been taken captive and return and make supplication to you in the land of those who have taken them captive, saying, we have sinned and committed iniquity, we have acted wickedly. And if they return to you with all their heart and all their soul in the land of their enemies who have taken them captive and pray to you towards their land which you have given to their fathers, the city which you have chosen, the house which I have built for your name, listen in heaven your dwelling place to their prayer. Give and their supplication. Do justice for them. Forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions which they transgressed against you. Give them over as objects of compassion before those who have taken them captive that they may have compassion on them. For they are your people and your inheritance which you have brought forth from Egypt from the midst of the iron furnace that your eyes may be opened to the supplication of your slave and the supplication of your people Israel to listen to them whenever they call to you. For you have separated them from all the peoples of earth as your inheritance as you spoke by the hand of Moses, your servant, when you brought our fathers forth from Egypt, O Lord Yahweh. Now it happened that when Solomon had finished praying this entire prayer and supplication to Yahweh, he arose before the altar of Yahweh from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread towards heaven. And he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice saying, Blessed be Yahweh who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one promise has failed of all of his good promises which he promised by the hand of Moses his servant. May Yahweh our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May not forsake us or abandon us. That he may incline our hearts to himself to walk in his ways. To keep his commandments, his statutes, his judgments which he commanded our fathers. And may these words of mine which with which I have made supplication before Yahweh, be near to Yahweh our God day and night, that he may do justice for his slave and justice for his people Israel as each day requires. 
so that all the peoples of the earth may know that Yahweh is God. There is no one else. Let your heart therefore be wholly devoted to Yahweh our God, to walk in His statutes, to keep His commandments as at this day. Now the king and all Israel with him were offering sacrifices before Yahweh. And Solomon offered for the sacrifice of peace offerings, which he offered to Yahweh, 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. So the king and the sons of Israel dedicated the house of Yahweh. On the same day, the king set apart as holy the middle of the court that was before the house of Yahweh, because there he offered the burnt offering and the grain offering and the fat of the peace offerings. For the bronze altar that was before Yahweh was too small to hold the burnt offerings and the grain offering and the fat of the peace offerings. So Solomon celebrated the feast at that time and all Israel with him, a great assembly from Labo Hamath to the brook of Egypt before Yahweh our God for seven days and seven more days, even 14 days. On the eighth day, he sent the people away. They blessed the king. They went to their tents with gladness and goodness of heart because of all the goodness that Yahweh had shown to David his servant and to Israel his people. This is the word of the Lord. Well, friends, as we uh, consider this morning Solomon's prayer of dedication, all the events surrounding the temple's completion, we are going to consider the message of this chapter in a series of contrasts. And uh, you can find the, the contrast listed in the bulletin. There are a number of striking contrasts in this chapter. That's where we're going to be heading with God's help. But before we get to those contrasts, before we get to the actual content of Solomon's prayer, I want to point out the fact that Solomon's act of intercession here provides an enduring example for all civil magistrates who are in authority. And yes, it provides an example for the magistrates who govern this nation that we call Canada. Mentioned this at the introduction, our long-standing practice of opening parliament in prayer has come under attack by those who, who believe that this is a violation of the principle of church-state separation, which formally we don't have uh, in Canada, but many believe that, that we do. Or perhaps opposed by those who feel it is no longer appropriate to pray in a religiously diverse nation such as Canada. Well, friends, in the Old Testament, in God's law, we see the principle of church-state separation clearly taught. We're going to point this out as we go along in our study of the book of Kings, in particular the division between the office of the priests and the office of the king. This is the principle of church-state separation. Kings don't act like priests, and priests don't fulfill the function of kings. There is a distinction in office. There is a distinction in the authority structure that God ordained. Sadly, in our modern, increasingly humanistic age, many of us on this side of the French Revolution have come to embrace not the separation of church and state, but the separation of religion and state. And they're not the same thing. In other words, many have come to accept the idea that the state must remain completely neutral, completely unbiased when it comes to matters of religion and morality. That is a very popular notion today. Unfortunately, it is an idea that has gained a great deal of traction in the evangelical church because we have not thought this through. Because we have a very inconsistent worldview. Because even a cursory thought about the function of the civil magistrate, about the role of law in society, should show you and me and everyone else that we cannot keep 
religion separate from legislation. People often say this today. It's almost as though it's an accepted mantra or truism that we cannot legislate morality. You say, who, who are you Christians to think that you can legislate morality? Well, I would suggest to you the opposite is in fact true. We cannot help but legislate morality. Indeed, every law that is put into place here in Canada and any other nation on this planet is a reflection of some moral religious system. And you cannot avoid it. In our context, as those, most of us coming from, from England, since at least the time of, of Alfred the Great, and if we go back further than that in the West, the time of Emperor Justinian, English law, Western law, has been intentionally rooted in the Christian religion and in the authority of God's Word. We are a commonwealth of nations that have looked to the Bible for our moral and legal foundation. But today in Canada, the truth is not that we have become less religious and more enlightened. Here's what we've done. We've exchanged one religion for another one. We have traded the true religion for a false religion. We have traded Christianity for secular humanism. And this is our new religion. This is the state religion of Canada and much of the Western world. And in tandem with the rise of humanism, many evangelicals have bought into the myth of neutrality, the false idea that religion can be separated from politics. This is naive in the extreme. Naive in the extreme. The doctrine of church-state separation we Baptists embrace in our doctrinal confessions is not the same thing as the separation of religion from politics. Our beliefs about church-state separation do not in any way mean that we need to keep Christian influence out of the public sphere or that we can never talk about these types of issues from the pulpit. Indeed, while we recognize that God has ordained a division of authority between church and state, we Christians should be actively trying to influence all areas of modern society. We ought to be unapologetically, unhesitatingly asserting Christ's lordship over everything and over everyone in heaven and on earth. He is Lord of all. And so, my friends, if you read this prayer and you say, well, this was all well and good for the Jews in the Old Testament, but this is not for us today. And th- this prayer makes you uncomfortable. You're inclined to think, well, you know, maybe it would be very inappropriate for a king or for a prime minister to say something like this today. I want to challenge your thinking on that. With an open Bible, bring your thinking under the authority of Scripture. I'm not sure about you, brothers and sisters. I long for the day when one of our magistrates would utter a prayer like this. I long for that day. A magistrate that recognizes the supremacy of God and that recognizes the centrality of His Word and His law, not just for the church, but for all of society, for all of life. And so that's all I say this morning by way of preamble. And we dive into the context of uh, content of the prayer itself in these various contrasts. Well, the first contrast that we find here in the text is a contrast between rest and wandering. And it's found in the first eight verses of the text in the narrative portion leading up to Solomon's prayer of dedication. Over the past two weeks in this series through the book of Kings, we've been looking at the building and the furnishing of the temple. 
But you may have noticed, by the time we get to the end of chapter 7, the most important piece of furniture is still missing. It hasn't arrived yet. That, of course, is the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant, unlike the other pieces of furniture in Solomon's temple, was built during the time of Moses. For hundreds of years, the Ark sat in the Holy of Holies. It was a golden box functioning as the earthly throne of God. It was the repository of God's law. The Ark was kept by the priests within the holy place. But during the time of the judges, we know that the Ark was captured by the Philistines and it was taken away from Israel. By this time in history, both the Philistines and the Jewish people had a pagan outlook. Instead of trusting in the Lord to fight and win their battles, the Israelites started to treat the Ark of the Covenant as though it was a magical box. It was just a magical relic. And they were trusting in the golden box and not trusting in the Lord. And God judged their paganism by allowing the Ark to be captured by their enemies. And then he... He punished the Philistines who had desecrated it. The ark was sent back to the land of Israel where it rightfully belonged. But you know something? Instead of taking the ark from the Philistines and putting it back into the tabernacle, as the law instructed, quite uh, curiously, the ark remained in, in private homes for a time. And we read about a man named Obed-Edom who was blessed by the Lord during a three-month period in which he guarded the ark and evidently treated it with the appropriate attitude. And from the home of Obed-Edom, King David retrieved the Ark of the Covenant and he brought it back to Jerusalem. And you remember this, uh, this story, David's action in bringing the Ark back, that David was not completely blameless in this. Instead of transporting it properly by the Levites, David put it on an ox cart. And uh, it almost fell off the cart on the way and a well-meaning man named Uzzah reached up and touched the ark to keep it from falling in the mud and God struck him dead. As good a king as David was, there were times when David departed from God's law and the way that he handled worship and the location where the ark was kept. By the way, at that time, the ark was not even kept by David in the tabernacle. The ark was in a separate tent in Jerusalem and the tabernacle was elsewhere at Gibeon. There were two locations of worship. But now with the completion of the temple, all the irregularities are set to be resolved. The Ark of the Covenant is about to come home. It's about to be placed once again into the Holy of Holies. And so 1 Kings 8 marks a significant correction in Israel's worship, a transition point in history as God has now established them in the promised land. He has given them the capital city. As we pointed out, God's law. In Deuteronomy 12, look forward to the time when their wandering would give way to rest. Solomon's actions here in chapter 8 is a fulfillment of that promise. This expectation back in Deuteronomy 12, Israel's worship being centralized and the mobile tabernacle being replaced by a permanent temple. Well, as we read the first 12 verses carefully, we discover Solomon was aware of the significance of what was happening. This, this contrast between wandering and rest. You flip back for a moment, just a page to chapter 6, 1 Kings 6, and you look at verse 38, the very last verse of chapter 6. You'll notice we're told that the temple was completed in the eighth month of the year. 
The building project was finished in the eighth month of the year. Now we go to chapter 8, verse 2. We learn that the Ark of the Covenant was transported to the temple in the seventh month of the year. It was completed in the eighth month of the year, and then the Ark transported in the seventh month of the year. Now, it, it might be easy just to skip over these time markers. I want to point out here, Solomon waited 11 months from the time that he finished the building of the temple to the time that he dedicated the temple and brought the ark to the holy place. Why would he do that? Well, the reason why Solomon waited 11 months to bring the ark into the temple and to dedicate the temple was because he wanted the dedication of the temple to coincide with the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles. This was an annual festival in Israel commemorating their 40 years of wilderness wandering. And Solomon had planned this out. He had thought this through. He wanted to dedicate the temple in such a way as to highlight the contrast between wandering and rest. The Feast of Tabernacles reminded the people of Israel of their past history. The days when they lived in tents and they worshipped the Lord in a mobile tent. And at the same time, King Solomon is pointing his people towards the future and the promise of permanence and rest in the promised land. And so by dedicating the temple during the Feast of Tabernacles, he is teaching the nation, God is fulfilling his promises. He is a covenant-keeping God. Now you notice in verse 6, unlike his father David who put the ark on an ox cart, this was an act of negligence and disobedience, Solomon follows the law of Moses. Solomon has learned the lesson from his father's mistake. He gets the Levites to transport the ark. And because the ark was built for use in the tabernacle, the ark for centuries needed to be moved around from place to place. God instructed that the ark would be built with these golden loops on the side and with poles. So that could be carried around by the Levites. And it's very interesting, verses 6 to 8 of our text, that it makes a big deal about the poles. I don't know if you noticed that when we read through. It talks about the poles that remained in the ark even after it was put into its permanent place. Look at verse 7 of the text. It says there, For the cherubim spread their wings over the place of the ark. The cherubim made a covering over the ark and its poles from above. But the poles were so long that the end of the poles could be seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but could not be seen outside, and they are there to this day. And so the inspired author goes to great lengths in these verses to emphasize that the poles, the carrying poles, remained with the ark right up until the time of the Babylonian exile. That this was a visible reminder of Israel's past wandering, as well as a a token of permanent rest. This theme of rest and wandering highlighted both in the timing of the temple's dedication, the preservation of the carrying poles. This is very significant. But this theme was not exhausted when the temple was dedicated. Indeed, this theme of wandering and rest runs all throughout the Bible. It continues in the New Testament. The theme of wandering or of exile is as old as the Garden of Eden when Our first parents sinned against the Lord God. They experienced exile for the first time in history. There was banishment from the garden and the the garden temple, the first temple on earth was barred. 
And as we trace the storyline from Genesis to Revelation, we see the promise that one day the time of humanity's exile would come to an end. God's people would eventually experience the promised rest. Eden will be restored. In the provisional way, we may say that God's people experienced a degree of this rest under Joshua. They got into the promised land. They received their tribal allotments. But even so, the rest was not totally experienced under the time of Joshua. The nation was beset by war and oppression. And we fast forward from the time of Joshua, the judges, to the time of the kings. There is yet another period of rest. The temple is completed. The worship is centralized in Jerusalem. But even now, the rest is not complete. We're going to see this as we make our way through the book of Kings. Israel once again breaks covenant with the Lord. They end up in exile again, this time in the land of Babylon. And we fast forward again to the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, and we see God's faithfulness. He brings the 70-year Babylonian exile to an end. A remnant of the Jews return back to the promised land. The hopes are high, but the exile is not over. Because Israel is now under the thumb of a string of foreign oppressors eventually culminating in the Roman occupation of the land. And in 70 AD, the Romans destroyed the temple. And as we make our way through the grand narrative of the Bible, we get hints here and there about this final rest to come. Hebrews chapter 4, the author addresses the theme of rest directly. Hebrews 4 verse 1, he says, Therefore let us fear lest well a promise remains of entering his rest, any of you may seem to have fallen short of it. For indeed, we have had good news proclaimed to us as they also, but the word that was heard did not profit those who were not united with faith among those who heard. A little further down the page, he says, for if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall into the same example of disobedience. We come to the New Testament, and at long last we see the end of exile, the arrival of Israel's king. This is a true king who rules and reigns on David's royal throne. The seed of the woman who crushes the serpent's head. As Christian people, you and I experience God's rest. We experience God's Sabbath rest. How? Not just when we gather on the Lord's Day, but all the time. As we trust in Christ alone, as we receive the salvation that He alone can give. For Christian people, the Sabbath is not just one day in seven. The the Sabbath is a continual reality as we trust and rest in the one to whom the Sabbath was pointing. But friends, even though you and I are presently experiencing the rest of God in salvation, there is still a rest that remains for the people of God. We have a kingdom that is already here in in a certain sense, and a kingdom that is coming in greater fullness. And this tension between our rest and our wandering that was at the forefront of Solomon's mind is still a tension that we Christians deal with today. Because we live in between the now and the not yet of the kingdom. This tension between the rest that we experience in Christ and the rest that we will one day experience in far greater fullness. We move forward then to the second contrast in the chapter. 
found primarily in verses 9 to 27. This is a contrast between God's transcendence and God's imminence. Another way to say that is the fact that God is high and exalted. That's transcendence, but also that he is near. He's high and exalted and he is near. Now the first glimpse of the second contrast is found in the mention of the law. You'll notice here the two stone tablets that Moses received from the Lord. And it says in verse 9, this is interesting, it says that there is nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses laid there at Horeb. Horeb being another word for Mount Sinai when, where Yahweh cut a covenant with the sons of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. Although elsewhere, the scripture speaks about Aaron's rod and a jar of manna that was either placed inside of the ark or at the very least in close proximity to the ark, it seems as though both of these items by this period of history had been either lost or destroyed. We don't know how. Possibly when the Philistines captured the ark, these other items were either lost or destroyed. By Solomon's time, there's only one item left in the ark, and that is the Ten Commandments written on tablets of stone. By the way, why are there two tablets? It's not because five commandments were written on one and five on the other. Uh, There's two tablets because one is God's copy and one is Israel's copy. That's how tablets and covenants were made. There were two copies for each one of the parties involved. And so the tablets of stone placed into the ark... If you look back at the book of Exodus, the time when Moses received these ten words from the Lord, you'll be immediately struck by the contrast between God's transcendence and imminence. God's transcendence was on full display when Moses received those tablets as Mount Sinai quaked and shook. The people of Israel solemnly warned, don't come near. Stay back. And God's transcendent glory was shown on Mount Sinai, but yet we know Moses communed with God on the mountain. And God condescended to give His people His word and law. It's amazing. Exodus 33, it tells us that the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Isn't that an amazing verse? Speaks to him face to face as one who would speak to a friend. That's imminence. Or another remarkable text, Exodus 24.11, it says that Moses and the elders of Israel saw God on the mountain and ate and drank in His presence. Love that. They saw God, they eat and they drink in His presence. The giving of the law at Mount Sinai, the stone tablets bring together God's imminence and transcendence in a wonderful way. It is no coincidence that these tablets were placed inside of the ark. Secondly, we learn from verses 10 and 11, at the temple's dedication ceremony, God manifested physically among the people in a cloud that filled the temple. Verse 10, it it talks about this. It says that it happened when the priest came out of the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, because the glory of the Lord filled the house. Just as God had led the people through the wilderness by means of a pillar of cloud, just as a visible glory cloud filled the wilderness tabernacle, God manifests His presence and power among His people. This is called the Shekinah glory. The visible glory of God. So strong on this day of dedication that the priests were overwhelmed. You love that uh, little detail there. The priests were overwhelmed 
by this physical manifestation of God's presence. By the way, the cloud is a visible token bringing together imminence and transcendence. On the one hand, the visible manifesting of the cloud was a comforting reminder to the people of Israel that God was with them. As he had been with Moses, as he had been with all of their ancestors, God was dwelling among them and was filling the house that they had built. But just as the cloud signified God's presence and nearness to his people, so does the cloud obscure God. And it reminds us that God is other. He is not like us. And so the cloud reveals and conceals at the same time, thus bringing together this divine mystery. The same God who fills the universe with his presence and power is dwelling in Jerusalem among his people. And friends, although we no longer see this kind of physical, visible manifestation, the new covenant, the truth is we have something better than a cloud. Amen? We've got something better than a cloud. There's a large church in California that thinks they need to mimic the cloud in order to, to make the people think that God is with them. And so we need to sprinkle gold, put gold dust or whatever into the uh, ventilation system and uh, fabricate this uh, glory cloud. We have something better than the cloud. <laughs> we have the Lord Jesus Christ. John chapter 1, the Word became flesh and tabernacled among them. Among us. And we beheld His glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I have no desire to see a glory cloud. We have something way better than that. Christian friend, if you want to know where God's glory is seen today, you need look only one place. Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, the One whom Isaiah called Emmanuel. God with us. This is what we celebrate during Advent, the mystery of the incarnation, the contrast between God's imminence and transcendence, our transcendent, glorious God taking on human flesh and dwelling among us in the person of His Son. That's where this theme reaches its its pinnacle. The baby in the manger who is the King of the universe and the Creator of all things. You know, we sometimes sing an older chorus emphasizing this awesome contrast so beautifully manifested in Christ. Meekness and majesty, manhood and deity, in perfect harmony, the man who is God. Lord of eternity dwells in humanity, kneels in humility and washes our feet. Oh, what a mystery, meekness and majesty. Bow down before him, for this is your God. We see this contrast in the giving of the law at Sinai. We see it in the glory cloud that overwhelmed the priests. We see it thirdly in the opening part of Solomon's prayer. The words that Solomon prays in verse 27, he says, But will God truly dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less the house that I have built. Brothers and sisters, if if you are misunderstanding this, and you think that Solomon was this primitive fellow that thought he had somehow caged God up within the city of Jerusalem and within the four walls of the physical temple, Solomon understood perfectly well the doctrine of God's omnipresence. He understood it perfectly well. He says it numerous times that God fills the universe with His power. 
the visible cloud that filled the temple that day, this was not an indication that God was shut up inside of a building. Not at all. It was a visible token that God was there. And in like manner, when we Christians gather around the Lord's table, we remember the Lord's death, we do not believe that our Savior is physically shut up in a little bit of bread and a little bit of juice. What a low view of God to think that He's shut up in bread and wine. The same principle applies that the finite cannot contain the infinite. The finite cannot contain the infinite. God was not contained in a physical temple. God is not contained in the elements at the Lord's Supper. God is not contained within the four walls of a church building. God is omnipresent. Our God fills the universe with His power. Psalm 139, O Lord, You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand shall hold me. David understood this truth. Solomon understood this truth. You and I need to understand this truth with even greater clarity. The eminence and the transcendence of our glorious God, the way in which these excellencies are uniquely brought together in the person work of Jesus Christ. Third contrast we see in the chapter is the most predominant one in the prayer. This is the contrast between God's judgment and mercy. Although King Solomon at this time in his reign was walking in covenant faithfulness to God and he is leading the people in covenant faithfulness, you'll notice that Solomon's prayer takes into consideration the ugly reality of sin. Solomon's prayer actually anticipates times of disobedience when the nation will break covenant with God and when the nation will turn away from his law. King Solomon was not looking at the future through rose-colored glasses. Solomon knew Israel had a track record of disobedience. They disobeyed in the time of Moses. They disobeyed in the time of Joshua. They disobeyed numerous times during the time of the judges. Solomon knows they will continue to fall short of God's standard. And so we see that one of the major themes permeating the prayer is this theme of mercy and forgiveness. It's uh, introduced first in verse 30. It's fleshed out through a number of concrete examples. And Solomon doesn't leave it to our imagination. He, he spells it out. These are the ways that Israel will depart from God and from the precepts of His Word. Verse 30, Solomon petitions the Lord on behalf of the nation. He says, listen to the supplication of your slave and your people Israel. When they pray towards this place, listen in heaven your dwelling place. Listen and forgive. Remember the Lord Jesus praying for future generations of disciples in John 17. Here Solomon is praying. He is interceding for future generations that would be born under the covenant. Verse 31, verse 32, he envisions a situation which justice has been overturned. He asks the Lord, Lord, hear and judge in these cases. When there's no witnesses to testify, when there is no easy way to determine the truth of the matter, 
And Solomon prays that in such impossible cases, the person would take an oath at the temple and God would intervene to punish the wicked and reward the righteous. He is affirming not only the omnipresence of God, but the omniscience of God, that God knows everything. He's asking that guilt would not come upon the nation due due to a lack of justice. Secondly, verse 33 envisions a situation which Israel's rebellion would result in military defeat. And this happened again and again and again during the judges, during the time of King Saul. Solomon is is not making this stuff up as he goes along. Solomon is patterning his prayer after the law of God, Deuteronomy 28, Deuteronomy 29, Leviticus 26. These are the covenant blessings and the covenant curses. We know this during the time of Moses, Israel entered into a national covenant with the Lord. As part of that covenant, God spelled out, these are the blessings that will come upon the nation of Israel if you keep covenant, and these are the curses that will come upon you if you disobey. So Solomon is reflecting here upon the covenant curses that are listed in Deuteronomy, one of which is defeat at the hands of enemies. You read through that list, there's another curse, there is There is drought, there is famine, pestilence. Verses 35 to 7, Solomon prays that during such times of discipline, the people would pray towards the temple and confess their sins and would receive forgiveness and restoration. Do you know what the right response of a people is when a pestilence comes upon the land? Repentance and a turning to God. Has COVID resulted in repentance and a turning to God? Finally, verse 36, Solomon envisions rather prophetically a time of exile. This is the most severe of the covenant curses, a painful reality that Israel was later on to experience at the hands of the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Normal cases, exile would spell the end of a nation, but Solomon envisions the captives petitioning God from their foreign lands and eventually returning to the land of promise. And you can think of many examples in the Old Testament of God's people praying in exile. Think about Daniel. Remember Daniel and the lion's den. That Daniel was praying three times a day with the window open facing Jerusalem. Wonder where he got that idea from. He didn't make it up. He was praying towards the temple. He was reflecting on the prayer that Solomon had prayed. Very interesting to notice, every one of the covenant curses that Solomon mentions here in this prayer came to pass upon Israel. Injustice was perpetrated against the innocent. Drought and famine came to the people with a vengeance. They were humiliated on the field of battle. They were taken into foreign exile. Solomon envisioned all of these things happening in the future, and he knew that God's judgment would fall upon the nation if and when they broke covenant. But Solomon knew the character of God. He knew that God was gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He knew the example of his father, David. God forgives those who repent of sin. His own father committed two horrendous sins and confessed and repented and is called a man after God's own heart. That the Lord shows mercy to a thousand generations of those who love him. Solomon knew, Solomon understood 
God remains faithful even when we remain unfaithful. You know, friends, as I I thought this week about the contrast between judgment and mercy, I was reminded of that prayer that Andrew read at the beginning of the service, the prayer that the prophet Jonah offered up in the belly of the whale. Here is a covenant-breaking, disobedient prophet undergoing a severe bout of discipline from God. You talk about creativity in the judgments of God, swallowed by a whale, which was at one and the same time a a punishment, an act of discipline, and an act of rescue. It's both mercy and punishment, discipline. When Jonah is sitting inside of the whale, he is thinking about the temple. He says, says it in his prayer. Jonah prayed to the Lord from the belly of the fish and said, I called out of my distress to the Lord and he answered me. I cried for help from the belly of Sheol and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas and the current surrounded me. All your breakers and waves passed over me. So I said, I have been driven away from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again towards your holy temple. In his prayer of dedication, Solomon counseled the nation, seek the face of God in times of trouble. Penitently turn towards the temple and pray. Confess your sin. Ask for mercy and you will receive it. This is what Jonah did. This is what Daniel did. This is what Nehemiah did. Many others in the Old Covenant did this, and each one of them found Solomon's word to be true. God is willing to forgive if we repent. He will forgive if we repent. We turn from our evil ways. Brothers and sisters, although we no longer have a physical temple in the New Covenant era, the principle that lies at the heart of Solomon's prayer is as true today as it was in the Old Covenant, Our God is just and merciful towards His people. You know, no longer in the New Covenant, we don't need to position our our chairs to face Jerusalem when we pray. We're we're not like uh, the Muslims that pray towards uh, Mecca. We, We do not need to pray towards Jerusalem in the New Covenant era, but we do pray in the direction of the true temple. Our prayer is directed towards Jesus Christ, to Him and through Him. When you and I break covenant with the Lord God, when we sin against Him and against others, there is forgiveness. There is grace at the foot of the cross. This is why John gives us hope when we stumble and sin against God and we break covenant with Him. He says in his epistle, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Christ the Righteous One. And He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but the sins of the whole world. In the Old Covenant, God's people were instructed, pray towards the temple because that was the place of sacrifice and atonement. That was the place where forgiveness could be found. In the New Covenant, forgiveness is not found at the temple. It is found at the cross. The only place on this earth where God's wrath and God's mercy are brought together and guilty sinners receive pardon and cleansing. Christian brother and sister, when you sin against the Lord, when you break covenant with our God, don't despair. Run to the cross. Run to the cross. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Fourth contrast 
In Solomon's prayer, the contrast between outsiders and insiders. You find this in verses 41 to 43. It says also concerning the foreigner who is not of your people Israel, for they will hear of your great name and your strong hand, your outstretched arm. If he comes and prays towards this house, listen in heaven your dwelling place, do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name to fear you as do your people Israel and to know that your name is called upon this house which I built. Although God's covenant was made specifically with the nation of Israel, the descendants of Jacob and his 12 sons, we know from the Old Testament, God's covenant was inclusive of believing Gentiles. We know that God's covenant in the Old Testament was was inclusive of the Gentiles. His plan was evangelistic for Israel. That Israel was established as a light to the Gentile nations. That the temple was established as a house of prayer for all nations. Now, there are many different places that we can find this in the Old Testament. One of the clearest expressions of Israel's missionary calling and mandate is found in Psalm 67. Very short psalm about God's salvation among the nations. And the inspired poet writes, May God be gracious to us. He's speaking as as an Israelite. May God be gracious to us and bless us and cause His face to shine upon us. Why? That your way may be known on the earth, your salvation among all of the nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Solomon understood this. The psalmist understood this. The prophets understood this. God's plan was never merely to save one nation, but to choose one nation through which the Messiah would come as a blessing to all nations. That wasn't plan B. That was plan A. Right from the beginning. Right at the outset of the temple's dedication, Solomon wanted the people to know God had given them a missionary identity. Israel was a light to the Gentiles. The the temple was a house of prayer for the nations. One of the best places to see how this contrast is teased out in the ministry of Jesus is his conversation with the woman of Samaria in John chapter 4. This, of course, a dialogue that turned towards the subject of the temple and the relationship of the temple to, to true worship. At one point in that conversation, the, the Samaritan woman who was a religious and an ethnic outsider, she asked Jesus, she said, I know that you're a prophet and I want you to tell me this, where is the right place to worship? Should we worship God at your temple in Jerusalem or should we worship him at our temple here at Mount Gerizim? And Jesus said to her, silly woman, you know where you should worship. It's in Jerusalem. Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for such people The Father seeks to be his worshipers. Jesus acknowledges salvation comes from the Jewish nation because he was born through that lineage. Jesus was a Jew. 
Messiah came from national Israel. At the same time, Jesus acknowledges the broad scope of God's redemptive plan that was never limited to Israel. Even more importantly, Jesus identifies himself to this woman as the true location of new covenant worship. There is no established building or geographical location where we need to worship God in the new covenant. We also know on at least one other occasion, possibly twice, that Jesus went into the temple with a whip and overturned the tables of the money changers. He was filled with righteous anger. Why? It wasn't because they were selling CDs in the church lobby. (laughs) It's because they were pushing the Gentiles out of the place of prayer. The, The temple was so filled with these money changers making a profit that the Gentiles couldn't come. And it enraged Jesus with a holy anger. Israel forgot about their missionary calling and identity, but Solomon didn't forget that. Solomon knew God's plan from the beginning was as broad and as wide as the earth itself. And we rejoice in the broad scope of God's saving plan. We even sing about it in our Christmas carols. Come, desire of nations, come. Fix in us thy humble home. Fifth contrast here in the text is a contrast between promise and fulfillment. We see this most clearly in verses 54 to 61. Verse 56, I I think verse 56 is worth the price of admission. This is my my favorite verse in, in the chapter here. Solomon says, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one promise has failed of all his good promises, which he promised by the hand of Moses. Other translation, not one promise has fallen to the ground. Not one. Now we've already spoken today about this tension between the now and the not yet. The promises of God's word tend to be filled progressively and in such a way that there is usually a surplus of expectation. We see partial fulfillment and then there's even more. There's even more to come. And this is remarkable. Do you know Solomon who lived a few thousand years ago, in his generation, he he looks back at the promises that God made to Moses. The promises that God made to his father David. And Solomon sees God has kept his promises. Even Solomon could see it. Not one of God's promises has fallen to the ground. As Christians living in the New Covenant, we have seen the ways in which God has fulfilled His covenant promises. We have seen blessings and fulfillment that Solomon and his generation could only see in the dimmest way. And we see it with great clarity, with great brightness. We know beyond question our God keeps His covenant. Not one promise falls to the ground. And because we know that God is a covenant-keeping God, He has an impeccable track record of promise keeping we know beyond question every promise will be fulfilled every every one we stand on those promises we rejoice in those promises we root all of our hope in those promises and in the god who brings them to completion the sixth and final contrast is in the closing paragraph verses 62 to 66 a contrast here in closing between fear and festivity We've learned already Solomon delayed the dedication of the temple by 11 months so that the completion of the temple would coincide with the Feast of Tabernacles. This was like Christmas time for the Jewish people. 
This was a time of great joy and feasting and festivity. And normally this feast would last seven days. That's pretty good. A seven-day feast and festival and holiday. But in verse 65, we read that on this year, Solomon doubled it. He said, let's, let's not stop at seven. Let's keep going to 14. And they doubled the normal timing of the feast. In verse 66, it says, The people went to their tents with gladness and goodness of heart because of all the goodness that the Lord had shown to David his servant and to Israel. But you know, all the joy, all the gladness that poured forth on that happy day was mixed with an appropriate fear and reverence of God. Because you will notice that mixed in with all of this feasting and festivity are 120,000 sheep that are sacrificed. Can you, can you even imagine that? The amount of sacrifice. It says that there are so many sacrifices offered that the bronze altar was too small to keep up with the demand. And Solomon had to set apart as holy the middle of the courtyard. And so in the middle of this great time of joy and festivity is reverence and awe for the Lord. An awareness that He is a holy God. An understanding we can only approach God as sinners in need of grace. Brethren, in a world like ours that is filled with so much darkness and opposition to truth, it's very tempting to give in to the wrong kind of fear. To be anxious about what the future holds. Maybe to lose sleep about what challenges tomorrow might bring. And we very easily give in to the fear of man. We, we very easily start to think, well, maybe Satan is the one that's in control. Maybe God's not in control after all. Maybe it's Satan. Maybe it's Maybe it's Satan's minions who are the ones that are in charge of this world. We give in to the wrong kind of fear and we allow that fear to dominate and our hearts become anxious and our prayer life begins to languish and our thoughts become despairing and our days become filled with this ungodly sense of doom and gloom. This foreboding. The Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We Christians ought not to fear the future because we know the one who holds the future. Because the Bible says how it's going to turn out in the end. We also ought not to fear Satan and his followers here on the earth because Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. And greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Rather than dreading the many things that we cannot control, rather than allowing gloom and despair to reign supreme in our hearts, We must choose instead to fear and reverence the God who is sovereign. The God who controls all of creation history. The God who providentially works all things according to the counsel of His will. You know, one way that we can foster that godly reverence and fear is by celebrating the goodness of God. We push back against the darkness and the despair of this world through our corporate gatherings, through our festivity. As Christians, through joy and laughter, the joy of the Lord is our strength. I'm not sure about you guys, I'm glad it's Christmas. With all of the bad news, the despair that could easily overtake us, I'm glad it's Christmas. And that we can take these weeks to celebrate the birth of Christ. And to remember that He is King and He is Lord over all. The joy of the Lord is our strength. There are a number of contrasts in our text. Rest and wandering, 
transcendence and imminence, mercy and judgment, insiders and outsiders, promise and fulfillment, fear and festivity. All of these contrasts point us towards Christ, the Lion of Judah, who is also the Lamb that was slain. Amen.